Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators Podcast, sponsored by Zoetis. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editorial Director at The Horse. Every day, equine researchers are examining new ways to care for and understand our horses and the horse industry. In this podcast series, we speak to those innovators to learn more about their work. Veterinary pathologists might not be who horse owners think of immediately when we're considering how we care for our horses, but their work is absolutely crucial to the horse industry. They detect and safeguard horse populations from disease, and they answer important questions about why horses have died. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Yanita Bryant of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Bryant is a veterinary pathologist and an associate professor at the university's Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory in Lexington. Welcome, Dr. Bryant. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for having me this afternoon. So could you describe your background and your path to becoming a veterinarian, please? Sure. Um, So I can remember dating back to me being eight years old when I decided I wanted to become a veterinarian. But my uh, parents told me it was earlier than that. But I remember eight years old want to become a vet, love animals, was always exposed to animals. Um, and I just kind of stayed on that path. So um, worked in veterinary clinics starting at the age of 15. Um, luckily, my um, first veterinary employer actually paid for my rabies vaccination. So I wor- worked for several different um, clinics within my um, high school years. and. When I decided to go to vet school, of course, I didn't come back home very often, but I would come back and I would go back and work for those veterinary clinics. So I would work at one, eight to five and leave that clinic and go to the emergency clinic and work overnight. So got a lot of exposure to different things. They allowed me to do some some um, non-invasive procedures, you know, because they knew what I was going into doing and so forth. And I was in the active uh, mode of veterinary school and so forth. but. The second year of veterinary school, that's when we were exposed to pathology, Um, Mm -hmm. our pathology courses, the second year of vet school. And it completely changed my whole decision on becoming a small animal um, clinician. I wanted to have my own clinic and get to see all the puppies and the kittens and Mm -hmm. smell all the puppy breath and solve all the diarrhea issues, itchy skin and but when I started taking my pathology courses in second year of vet school, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So as far as background, um, I actually did my undergraduate studies at Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, where I received my bachelor's of science degree in animal science with a concentration in pre-veterinary medicine. And I picked that up in 1998. And when I left there, I went straight down to Tuskegee, Alabama, Um, College of Veterinary Medicine, uh, where I picked up my doctorate of veterinary medicine degree, uh, which is in Tuskegee, Alabama. And like I said, before actually uh, going to veterinary school, I had all intentions on becoming a small animal vet. But that second year of vet school, pathology just changed my life. And I'm trying to think I met a few seasoned pathologists from the University of Kentucky at a regional pathology conference in Tifton, Georgia, and they were actually looking for a resident 
at this lab, University of Kentucky, it used to be Livestock Disease Diagnostic Center back then. Yes. It was LDDC when I first started here. And they were looking for a resident. Literally a month after graduating from um, vet school, I got a call to come and interview, and I have been here ever since. So I've been here since 2002, started off as a resident, um, did my training here. They hired me on as an assistant professor, and here I am now, tenured um, associate professor, um, happy in, in, in all the realms of what I do. That's amazing. Thank you. That's quite a, a journey you had there. So for those who might be unfamiliar with the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, could you describe what you and your colleagues do there and why? First off, you know, UKVDL is a fully accredited um, diagnostic lab, and we're accredited by the American Association of Veterinary uh, Laboratory Diagnosticians. So our mission here is to develop and apply state-of-the-art diagnostic methodology to improve animal health and marketability, to protect the public health and to assist in the preservation of human-animal bond through the principles of One Health. So when you think of a laboratory, diagnostic laboratory, you may think of just a few things that are done within this laboratory, but we have several sections within our lab. Um, So we have um, clinical pathology, molecular biology, serology, virology, toxicology, um, necropsy, of course, pathology. Um, so we have several individual labs within our labs. Okay, so everyone has a role, and um, each each section is very busy doing um, various things. Not only do we receive deceased animals, but we also receive small pieces of of animals from live animals. Okay, so mm-hmm. if an animal has a tumor that was surgically removed from um, you know, from a cat or a dog or a horse at a clinic, then that veterinarian will submit that um, to the diagnostic lab for examination from um, the pathologist. And so we have to read those out too. So we have to do necropsies, biopsies, and cytologies. Um, There's just so many roles that are played behind these doors uh, within the various um, labs. And it's all just to make sure we're protecting the human-animal bond and, you know, make sure we're uh, keeping up to date on zoonotic diseases, emerging diseases. So it's, it's a very um, an important diagnostic tool that we have here within the, the lab because um, there's a lot going on out there and we have to make sure that we cover all our bases and make sure we're, we're keeping our clientele up to date on what's going on out there. Wonderful. Thank you. So what do you typically spend most of your time doing at the lab and what are your favorite parts of your job? So my particular position is very heavy on necropsies. Um, So I spend a lot of time on the necropsy floor. And once um, necropsies are done, you know, of course, we have to take tissues from these animals and they're placed in formalin jars and they're actually Um, trimmed in into smaller pieces and formed into glass slides. So I have to read those slides um, under the microscope. And um, because not all diagnoses that we get, you can actually diagnose with the naked eye. So, you know, if you have a Mm -hmm. virus that's going on or a bacterial disease, sometimes fungal, um, you may not be able to see that with the naked eye. So we have to read glass slides under the microscope to um, definitively tell what's going on in a lot of cases. So that is where the bulk of my time is spent. 
Okay. Um, I do have a small percentage of extension within my, um, my job title. And with that, I actually do a lot of outreach and, and um, visiting from places and so forth. And I'll get into a little more detail about that later. But in addition to the necropsies and so forth, we, I do have a teaching component. So I am um, an adjunct faculty member at Lincoln Memorial University um, College of Veterinary Medicine, where we do have the um, class size is going to increase in January. Um, but right now we do get about 120, 30 students that rotate in rotations of eight to 10, basically wow. every two weeks through the diagnostic lab to teach them how to perform necropsies. You know, we only have two weeks with them. So, you know, at the end of the rotation, we're not expecting them to come out as being full-fledged pathologists because, of course, the residency is going to be three years of training. But we want them to leave um, feeling comfortable uh, performing a necropsy if they're asked to come out and do one or if they have to perform one at their clinic. Mm-hmm. So, so diagnostic, um, necropsies, biopsy, cytologies, and also the teaching component with Lincoln Memorial University. You accomplish a lot in your day-to-day, it sounds like. It's busy. <laughs> it's very busy. But it's fun. So, oh, I'm so glad. You know, it's so much can be said for someone who shows up at work every day and enjoys what they do. And Absolutely. goes home at night and says, you know what, today I accomplished a lot and I'm pretty happy about what I did. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So how many animals or about how many animals come through the VBL? And how do you know what's coming or do you know what's coming? So let me see. Um, This year, we've actually had a little over 3,000 necropsy cases come in. And out of those, we've actually received about 1,566 horses. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, that does not include the cases that we've received today, which today is actually a little busy down there. So that number is going to increase before the end of the year. But uh, a little over 3000 so far, 1566 of those are horses. And compared to um, our horse count in 2000, that's just about a little less than 300, less than what we had in 2000. Now, I don't know why that number dropped, but clients might be a little more conscientious or or conservative about what they're submitting. Could be mm-hmm. related to the economy. It could be related to, uh, well, I've seen this before. I don't need to submit it. Um, but a lot of times we will get our um, insurance cases in because they need that necropsy report in order to um, file for their insurance claims. But we do right. get animals in without insurance and they just want to know what happened, what happened. Mm-hmm. Or they may have other animals out there that you know, they want to make sure it's not anything infectious and something's going to spread to others and, and, and cause problems. Um, so in regards to what we expect to come in on a daily basis, a lot of times we have no idea. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. Sometimes we come in and there's nothing bad there waiting for us. And then sometimes it gets jam packed right at lunchtime. And then sometimes you get um, high profile cases that you actually get a phone call or email about prior to them arriving. So, you know, it all depends on what's coming in. Like I said, if it's a high profile case, you usually hear about it before it comes in. So um, you kind of get a little bit of background information and kind of prepare yourself as to what to expect. Thank you. So Mm -hmm. you touched on the insurance, the reason some people bring their horses in because of insurance claims, Mm -hmm. Um, others just because they want to know what's going on. Are there any other reasons that people bring in horses for necropsy? 
They could be related to a cruelty case. Mm-hmm. It could be associated with a possible malpractice type of situation. It could be a toxicology related case. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's uh, all different, all different types of, of reasons why those that aren't insured can come in. Um, and sometimes we will get some cases that will show up on the news and those mm-hmm. can get pretty heavy as far as emotional heaviness. You know, mm-hmm. I never want to hear or see anything about anyone doing anything wrong or malicious to an animal at all, because it just just doesn't make any sense as to why folks want to do stuff like that to helpless animals. But the one thing about those types of cases, those those abuse cases or just malicious um, cases, cases are, you know, sometimes you do get to get individuals off the street that are doing um, terrible things to animals because a lot of times they do start with the animals and they progress to humans. So that's the only really positive thing that I can think comes out of those types of cases. But when they do come in, it can it can get pretty heavy on the floor. Yeah, but when you arrive on the floor in the morning and you see that some horses have been or a horse has been submitted, what mm-hmm. are the steps that you guys take next? So the first thing is, you know, we grab the history and we read through the history uh, and just kind of getting your mindset, you know, come up with some potential differentials. What are you going to expect to see on the necropsy floor before you even touch the animal? Then you want to do a really good look over of the animal overall, gross examination, um, you know, any external injuries, any you know, abnormal liquids coming from anywhere, Um, looking at the mucous membranes or ocular membranes, seeing whether they're pale or dark red to purple. You know, these are Mm -hmm. things that you can look for even before opening an animal that can kind of clue you into what you may find internally. Okay. It may not be precise of what you may be thinking about, but if you see some things externally, it kind of gives you a little, a shorter list of things where what you might expect to see once you Mm -hmm. open the horse. So once you've done your external examination, We do have a wonderful necropsy technician crew, which we would not be able to make it without them because we have a very heavy workload. I mean, these people are awesome. Okay, Mm -hmm. they know how to identify lesions when when they're opening animals. They know when to stop if they see something that's not right. Call you over. Hey, Dr. Bryant, you might want to look at this. Um, So they are trained to the point where they They know what they're doing. They've been doing uh, quite a few of them down there have been doing it as long as I have. Um, So without them, we as pathologists would be struggling trying to do all of those animals by ourselves. Okay, so what they will do is open the animal and they will actually take sterile samples of all the key organs and put them on a tray. And we'll have this tray to use to request Various testing, whether it's from the microbiology lab or the virology lab or molecular biology lab. So once we get the sterile tray out of the way, then the pathologist comes to the table. Everything is laid out on the table and we have to sample everything. But we have to go through everything systematically and sample 
all of our key organs so that those organs can be um, trimmed down into smaller pieces and and uh, made into slides so we can look at those histologically. And then once that's done, we look at the slides, we write up a report, we do a gross report, basically dictating what, what we all saw on the actual necropsy floor. Then we have to look at the slides, write a histopathologic examination, and then we come up with our, uh, our diagnosis as to what happened. Unfortunately, some cases are not as clear cut as others mm -hmm. um, and they need some further testing. Uh, whether it's toxicology testing, a lot of the tests that we can we can do in-house, but there's some tests that we have to actually send out um, to contract labs to perform. So um, it's it's a pretty uh, thorough process, but it is certainly worth um, trying to figure out exactly what happened to any particular animal. Indeed. So I'm curious about the toxicology cases. Which tissues would you send off or samples would you send off to those other labs? So um, it will vary based on what you're wanting to look for. But our standard um, toxicology specimens would be brain, blood. You take ocular fluid, aqueous and, and, and vitreous fluid, um, urine, liver, kidney, stomach contents, of course. And sometimes we have to take um, intestinal contents if there's nothing in the stomach. Sometimes you have to take hair. It will vary depending on what test you're looking for, um, what, what test you're, you're intending to, to run. So if I have a potential tox case, I pretty much take everything. And then it's, it's submitted to the toxicology lab and they actually freeze it back. And mm -hmm. what our um, in-house uh, veterinary toxicologist, Dr. Uh, Megan Romano, what she will do is wait for the pathologist to review the slides um, to determine what histopathologic alterations we're seeing in the tissues. And that will help her come up with a more um, narrow differential list based on what we see. You know, if we see hepatic necrosis um, or if we see um, necrosis within the heart or, you know, things like that, then she can actually go through her her mindset to say, okay, well, it's not this because it doesn't cause that and this. So it just kind of helps her come up with a uh, differential diagnosis list. And then we start from there because toxicology testing is very expensive. And if we tried to test for everything without <laughs> knowing yeah. exactly what lesions are there, uh, that could be a little overwhelming. Very, very expensive. So I'm imagining that when you guys are conducting these necropsies, you're probably outfitted in a bunch of gear. Is it oh, pretty yeah. standard? Okay. Yeah. So it's everything yeah. from masks to um, booties masks to everything. to face shields, gloves, um, boots. Now me, there's a couple of us. There's a couple of pathologists that go the extra measures and put on a vinyl apron. And that is, I am one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of our necropsy crew, I mean, they are they are just so they are perfectionists and they can open up horses and cows and all types of animals with no vinyl apron on and can leave the end of the day with not a spot of blood on their on their coveralls. I don't know how they do it. I have to have a vinyl apron on or else I yeah. am going to be soaked through with all types of liquids. And that wow. is not what I desire. So, yes, we do have plenty of PPE down there uh, to protect us from any given pathogen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Yes, we don't need to be walking home with some salmonella on us. Absolutely. And we do have showers here. So, you know, even if we do get something to soak in, we can get a good old rinse off before we leave work. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yes. Over the past 20 years, what are some of the discoveries at BDL that you found memorable, interesting or surprising? So I actually started here in 2002. And so I had just missed the big MRLS scare. Okay. Uh, which I was really wiping my brow about that because I have heard hard stories. I have seen photos of what the what the coolers looked like when all those babies came in. It was just a very uh, a drastic situation, uh, a very, very huge loss for Kentucky. Um, so I actually came in right after MRLS, but it was still continuing. The research and everything was still going on when I first got here. Um, so I would have to say MRLS is a very memorable um, disease process that we tackled within the last 20 years. As far as, you know, some of the things that we have come up with, um, we've had rapid advancement of technology, um, especially with our genetic-based testing. You know, we do have a, meta, a, a new metagenomics lab down in our basement that we've just pretty much started up not too long ago where, you know, uh, being able to find the new rotavirus through that laboratory. And of course, you know, we have the continued research on our cardioform placentitis and um, contracted foal syndrome. And it's just so many different things. Um, I would have to say another big thing that occurred uh, within the past 20 years is our renovation. Our renovation to um, the diagnostic lab, you know, so I actually started (laughs) when it was the original lab that I think was built back in 73, I believe. I think it was 73. And I want to remember, I think we might have received like $28 million to renovate this laboratory. So if folks thought that the lab was confusing when it was smaller, (laughs) You should come and take a visit now. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, we got a beautiful new necropsy suite. Um, Our new playroom down there, it is awesome compared to what we had. I mean, our caseload is just way too big to be able to function out of. I mean, we we did it back in the day. We did. Mm -hmm. But I, I can't even imagine, like, before I even came here as a resident, they had an even smaller necropsy room. Oh, wow. With one big table and one small rollaway table. And now we have like four big hydraulic tables and several, you know, smaller rollaway tables. I don't know how uh, the pathologists were doing what they do um, out of the conditions that we were in back then, but they got it done. And the caseload was even heavier back then. Wow. Because they they didn't charge um, necropsy fees when I first got here. Oh, gosh. Okay. Necropsies and related testing was free, but disposals cost twenty five dollars. Hmm. Right. Right. All right. So it's like, hmm. Okay. So we got a lot of rotten animals that would come in. Like, who's gonna pay twenty five dollars for a disposal when you could get a free necropsy and related testing for free? Right. I'm glad they've they've renovated that program, huh? Exactly. Exactly. So, yes, now we definitely see more quality cases come in. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, we do still see some rotten cases come in, but we definitely see more quality cases because you have to be strategic in what you're going to decide to submit because you're going to pay now. So, so, yeah, it's amazing how, how far we've come from 20 years ago. And I just want to mention for the people who maybe aren't initiated, MRLS was 
Mary Productive Loss Syndrome, which appeared first, I think, in May of 2001. 2001, yep. 2001, and um, caused caused late-term abortions and early fetal losses, I believe. Yeah. And I'll, I will just, um, in the show notes, I'll be sure I'll link to some of that information so people can read a little bit about MRLS um, and learn about that since we don't have enough time to talk about it today. Yes, yes. So um, what diseases and conditions are you primarily interested in finding in horses? Well, you know, there's so many things that can occur in horses. So I do have a, a few favorites. Um, I know when I first started as a resident, I, I came across a couple of cases of um, equine abortion that was caused by my, mycobacterium. Very interesting lesions. You know, mycobacterium is, is a bug that's beautiful um, when you put special stains on anyway. Um, they come out to be like this magenta or this purplish color. The, the bacilli are just beautiful when you stain them. And um, so this is a, a, a very uncommon um, bacterial cause of abortion in horses. And we saw a few cases during my uh, my times as a resident. Um, don't see much of that at all, but it's pretty exciting to see it when it does come through. So I'll have to put that on my list. And I do love a good tizzers case. Scissors disease in horses um, oh. have very beautiful classic lesions on the floor. Um, a lot of times um, you can almost just diagnose those from reading the history. OK, mm-hmm. that, that's one of those cases you read the history. A lot of them are, you know, just found dead in the field, you know, acutely just, you know, no premonitory signs. Um, but, you know, we do get some that have really, really good clinical histories and the veterinary was submitted in and they're suspicious of Tizzer's disease. So that's a lovely one I like to, to see grossly and histologically. And everyone loves a good rotococcus equi abscess. I mean, I don't know. Oh, who yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you don't think so? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, is that, what is that, like a lung abscess or where is that? Oh, it can be. It can be long. It could be ab- abdominal. I had a really beautiful case, like maybe two, no, was it two weeks ago? It might have been a couple of weeks ago where this foe had a humongous swollen stifle joint. Oh, wow. I mean, so swollen. I mean, as soon as you incise it, I mean, just so much goodness just came just spewing out. And it ended up being a really nasty osteomyelitis. And I mean, so bad that it actually mm-hmm. had a really a little piece of bone that just kind of plopped out of the bone. So mm-hmm. it was it was pretty nasty. I don't know how that baby was walking. It was three three legged lame. Uh, but I still don't know how that 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 poor thing was making it around. So herpes, herpes viral abortions is another one of my favorite ones. I know it's not a favorite for the clinicians or the, or uh, those that own horses. They have really beautiful classic lesions on the floor and they match up with the histologic lesions. Um, and of course, nocardiform placentitis cases. And I would have to add neonatal and fetal neoplasia. You know, after seeing fetuses, equine fetuses come in with metastatic cancer, um, yeah. Yeah, it it does not surprise me at all to see any animal young at any age having some type of neoplasia, because if we see it in aborted fetuses, we can see it in anything. That's really interesting. Now, yeah, Tizzer's disease. Can you remind me what that is caused by and what it what the signs are? So um, basically, Tizzer's disease is caused by Clostridium piliformi. It's an anaerobic uh, bacteria that um, basically it causes a multifocal necrotizing hepatitis. 
So these foals will come in with a liver two to three times the normal size. So they're really, really swollen. Like as soon as you you open up the abdomen, the liver is basically trying to jump out of the abdomen. And mm-hmm. um, it's swollen, pale, it's, it's mottled, kind of red tan, have these mottling areas of necrosis and hemorrhage. And so when you look at these slides under the microscope, you'll actually see the areas of hepatic necrosis or liver necrosis. And if you look really, really hard without putting stains on it, you can actually see those little bacilli within the hepatocytes, um, within the areas of necrosis or around the periphery of the areas of necrosis. And if you look hard and if you want to just you don't want to take the time to look really really hard, you can ask for a special stain. It's a silver stain. um, And you can put that on the liver and it actually shows you the bacilli. They're kind of stacked on each other within Hmm. the cells like that old game pickup sticks. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. So whoever's listening to this podcast, look up pickup sticks and then look up Tizzer's disease and Steiner or Warden Starry Stain. And you will be able to connect those two. <laughs> you will never forget what Tizzer's disease look like histologically. It's beautiful. Lots of lots of visual images to help people well, remember yes, things for to. sure in your field. Yeah. Yes, you have to as a, as a pathologist. We are very visual people. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about the the rotococcus and the stifle, but what are some other unusual findings that you have seen um, during a necropsy or tissue examination? So I have seen quite a few, but if we're going to focus on the horse, I can tell you two very memorable cases for me. One was a horse that was sh- uh, struck by lightning. So usually, usually those are very easy cases to diagnose. Um, it's, it's harder in cattle, but in horses, you can actually see um, these singe marks or what you call arborization marks along the hair coat of the horse. So, you know, a lot of times they come in with a history of found dead, um, thunderstorm last night, very bloated, and you get them in. And the first thing you want to do is look for those, these long linear um, singe marks throughout the hair coat. Mm-hmm. And um, this was a case where it did have the singe marks on the outside, but it also had a arborization mark along the pleura of the lung. So when we actually opened up the horse's chest, there's like a kind of like a jagged line of edema and hemorrhage on the surface of the lung. So mm-hmm. uh, I had never seen that before. It was very interesting. Um, Then there was another horse with another lung issue um, where the horse had actually inhaled a stem that was probably about 12 to 15 centimeters long with very, very long thorns sticking out of it. Ouch. I don't I don't know what type of bush it was, but the thorns were very long, sharp, like three times longer than like a rose bush thorn and they were just very slender and long that horse had inhaled that all the way to the caudal lung lobe now it didn't just get stuck at the at the front it inhaled it all the way to the back and it caused a really really necrotizing pneumonia very Mm. malodorous pretty stinky stuff and uh you know you're cutting through the airways trying to get to that and it's like oh my gosh what is this doing here so Mm -hmm. yeah that can happen that can happen yeah, as a lay person, and you know, I've seen lungs before, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around how something like that could get that far 
that oh. deep. Like, it just doesn't seem possible. I mean, it, it was just terrible. I just felt the mm-hmm. horse's pain looking at that lesion. Yeah. It was just, how did this happen? How? So I would have to say those were two of my, my most memorable horse cases. Okay, thank you. Dr. Bryan, I understand you have a very strong interest in educating the next generation of veterinarians and scientists. And I saw where you were even recognized on Kentucky Senate floor in 2018. That's amazing. So could you tell me a little bit about your outreach efforts to students? So I I could tell you the way it began was kind of surprising because I had no idea that I was going to be doing outreach. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Our past uh, director of the lab, Dr. Lynn Harrison, had evidently told a veterinarian that I was going to help him with this outreach uh, program. And I, I, well, I knew the veterinarian, um, but I, I saw him at a conference and he said, hey, did Dr. Harrison let you know uh, what we're going to be working on this summer? And I said, no, what are we going to be working on this summer? <laughs> and um, he's actually one of the, the federal veterinarians here in Kentucky, uh, Dr. John Hollis. And um, he said, well, we're going to be working with some students with the Ag Discovery Program. So this is when our lab was smaller and and it wasn't renovated yet. And um, we basically invited a group of, at the time, I think they were middle schoolers um, to the lab for uh, for a animal path lab exhibition. Okay, Um, so basically I set out different um, animal specimens and, you know, the students can come in and put gloves on and pick up things. And I was just so surprised at some of these students, very young, I mean, very young children, like not even teenagers yet, could mm-hmm. identify something like an endometrial cup in the uterus of a horse. Wow. And I had to look at her like, huh? Like, have <laughs> you been here before? Have you been on Earth before? Because there's some Amazing. pathology residents that don't know what an endometrial cup is, especially if they've been focus- focusing on lab animal or something. But um, mm-hmm. so that's the way that we got started. That has been over, huh? well, probably 18 years ago. When I started, it started very small and now it is very um, extensive. So, you know, I get email invitations um, from all different types of schools, science fairs, um, cattle production um, conferences, regional conferences. Um, I have set up from daycares (laughs) to colleges (laughs) to barbecue festivals at the stock stockyards. So it it has been an amazing experience and you just never know. You never know who you're going to get a call from. So <laughs> if I've set up a, a, at the barbecue festival, then there's no telling who's going to call me. So we'll have to see. <laughs> if someone of any age is considering a career in veterinary medicine, how would they know if pathology might be right for them? Uh, what are some benefits of this career route for veterinarians? Well, I would say get an opportunity to shadow a pathologist at their Mm -hmm. establishment or if you can't, because a lot of times when we have folks ask if they if they can come and shadow us here, um, they are typically probably underage or in a position where they they don't have a rabies vaccine. And we do require a rabies vaccine in order to go down on the floor, because sometimes we do get um, neurologic cases in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So if you can't, if you're in a position where you can't actually get on a necropsy floor with someone to shadow, um, you know, there's all types of YouTube videos out of animal um, necropsies and so forth. You won't get the full effect of it because you won't have the smells. But, you know, sometimes it just takes looking at a video to, mm-hmm. to <laughs> have you find out whether this is for you or not. OK. And as far as benefits, um, as far as this career, uh, I tell you, pathologists typically work in eight to five. Okay. When you think about a veterinarian, you know, uh, lots of veterinarians are on call. They get calls at three, four o'clock in the morning. Can you come pull this calf? I got a dystocia or, you know, just something very um, um, serious and and need to get to it quick. Pathologists don't have that issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what's done is done. Now, we do have situations to where if we have like 20 cows that have dropped dead or something or, you know, something weird going on uh, where you have a, a, a vast number of animals that are being affected, then that can turn into an emergency situation. OK, so yeah. we have to figure out what's going on. It may not be able to wait the next day, but it's going to be a very rare occurrence that that occurs, that a pathologist is going to get a phone call at two or three o'clock in the morning to, sure. to come and open up the lab and do necropsy. So I would have to say that's a benefit. There's a whole bunch of different um, fields within veterinary medicine that you can go into where you don't have to worry about those types of calls. Looking forward, what excites you about the future of equine pathology and where do you hope to see your impact on these students that want to become pathologists in 10 or 20 years? So I I say, you know, pathology and just veterinary medicine in general is a learning process every single day. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. something to learn every day. So, I mean, the it's just the endless amount of information um, that is going to continue to develop over the years. Okay, Um, it's a never ending story. You're going to have some reemerging diseases, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You're going to have some new things that pop up that's going to uh Get get the researchers up and, and ready to go, ready to tackle some things. Um, so, you know, there's there's just uh, so much to look forward to. And in regards to the future of equine pathology, I mean, there's there's so many things that we're still currently working on. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as the like uh, the mentoring of students and so forth, uh, I, you know, Next 10, 20 years, I would not mind looking into, and I don't know how to go into uh, to doing this, but a mobile unit for cool. the, you know, if you look up some articles about this, this display, you know, they say uh, UK VDL has become mobile, but we really don't have a mobile unit. It would be mm-hmm. awesome to be able to have something like that, right? Right now, you know, I'm just working out of a, a small white open bed pickup truck that's open to all the elements, but you know, I will be there regardless. <laughs> yeah. But to be able to have, I mean, you see some, some places have like mobile science units where, you yeah. know, they go to schools and the, and the students actually come out to the, to the unit and go through and rotate and explore and then go back into school. Something like that would be awesome within the next 10 to 20 years, but we'll have yeah, to see. Cool. I have to figure out who to ask. Or what grants to look for to see if we can make it happen. But there, there's so there's endless possibilities within equine pathology, not only equine pathology, but just pathology in general, um, mm-hmm. with uh, what's out there. So that would be very cool to have that 
to be able to go out to schools and events and things like that. Yes. You just have to decide what what you what would you want to put on the side of the mobile unit. Sure. It can't be too graphic, right? No. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> put a good case yeah. of rotococcus on the side, right? No rotococcus cases on the side. Probably not for anybody who is a little bit weak in the stomach, for sure. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I can remember a few years ago, I was driving down the interstate and I caught some motion to my left and I looked and there was a um, vehicle passing me hauling a trailer that had an aquarium in it with fish. And you can see the fish swimming around and it was some kind of like division of forestry or fish and wildlife. And it was an educational unit. And it was just so exciting to see these fish going down the interstate. (laughs) I would have loved so, to have seen that. Yeah. I mean, your samples are a little less um, mobile, but um, but equally right. interesting, you know? Right, right. Exactly. So, and we we do need to keep this this field filling with veterinarians and um, pathologists. So that'll be great. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to see, is there anything else you'd like to add to what we've covered today, Dr. Bryant? Well, I would say this, and this would go to anyone of any age, um, anyone still trying to figure out what they want to do as a career or currently stuck in a career that they're absolutely miserable in is, uh, you know, just reflect on what your interests are, what your passions are and pick something that you love and you have a passion for because, you're going to have to get up every morning and go to that job. And life is way too short to be stuck in something that you're absolutely miserable in. Now, I, I tell the students that I talk to that are still going through school and they, they may, may not be sure what they want to do or they're going to make a decision based on money. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, young kids, that's what it's all about. How many dollars can I get in my pocket? Right. So I have to urge them, you know, yes, money is important because you have to take care of yourself. And when you get old enough, if you have a family, you're going to have to take care of them. But make sure you pick something that you love to do, not just based on what your paycheck is going to say, but what you love and have a passion to do. Because you want to be able to love getting up every morning and going into a job that you absolutely love. So I think that is extremely important. And and it saddens me to talk to friends and colleagues that may not be happy in their current position. And it is never too late. Never mm-hmm. too late. You may think it's too late, but it's never too late to change um, what you're uh, doing and um, pursue something else that you love. That's amazing advice. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. where can listeners learn more about your work? So you can learn more about my work in addition to all the work that's being done at the University of Kentucky Veterinary Diagnostic Lab at vdl.uky.edu. All of our services are um, posted on there. Anything that you need to know is going to be offered on our website. If you want to check out our faculty and staff, we're on there as well. Um, So yeah, just come check us check us out. Thank you so much, Dr. Bryant, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you, Stephanie. It has been such a pleasure. I have had a ball with you today, and I hope your listeners can find something to pull out of this podcast today to uh, to, to to marinate on. You know, marinate mm-hmm. on, or if, if you're not interested in this career, it's okay. Just know that the UK VDL is here to serve you. If you have, 
you know, some some specimens or or anything that you need uh, performed, bring it on through. We are here. Or if you have a class that she needs to speak to about these things. That's so. right. You know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from the horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like this podcast, please do all the things you would do to support it. Rate, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends. Please join us next time as we talk with the horse industry equine innovators. 